This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today to be speaking about a really interesting book titled Of Love and War, Pacific Brides of World War II, published by the University of Nebraska Press, which examines what happened to Pacific women who married American soldiers during World War II, both in terms of kind of how they met them, how did their marriages go, but at least to me, more interestingly, what happened next? What happened when the war was over um, and these women tried to join their husbands in the United States? It's a complicated story. It's a really interesting story. And I'm very pleased to have the author, Dr. Angela Wanhala, with us to tell us all about it. So, Angela, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you. I'm really excited to talk about the book with you. Before we get into the book, though, could you please introduce yourself and give us the sort of backstory of why you decided to write it? Well, I'm a historian at the University of Otago in New Zealand, right at the bottom of the world, one of the most southern universities you could come across. Um, I have been working on a range of areas that probably relate to this book of love and war. First of all, I'm a historian of marriage, um, particularly interracial marriage in New Zealand. Um, I've written a book on the history of that. So that's one thing that folds into uh, of love of of love and war, and it's one of the major themes of the book. Uh, the other thing that I work on is the history of colonialism and the family. Um, so I'm very interested in colonial politics, uh, colonialism and its cultural context as well, and that is a major theme in of love of war. And I'm also since 2010, I've been working on the Second World War. Um, and in terms of its social history, especially. So of love and war itself comes out of that move to focus um, on the mid-20th century uh, in my works. And since 2010, I've been involved in a number of collaborative projects. And the one that's most relevant uh, was called Mother's Darlings, uh, which was um, a collaborative project led by an emeritus professor of history, Judy Bennett, expert on environmental history of the South Pacific, who developed a research project on the social impacts of American servicemen in the Southern Pacific region. Uh, And she had me working on the New Zealand component of that project. And we were particularly interested in the, not just the economic impacts of Americans uh, and military commands and occupations and very small island societies in the South Pacific, but also their broader social impacts, including the kinds of relationships that were formed, um, as well as marriage-like relationships in particular, and the children uh, that were left behind uh, by those American servicemen. So Mother's Darlings was a largely oral history project with some of the descendants of those relationships and tracked uh, the social impact of American fathers um, and the impact on Pacific families. Um, and Of Love and War comes out of that project um, and focuses in particular on the marriages that were formed. 
So given the kind of number of um, your existing research that fed into this, that's very helpful to know that context, could you tell us a bit about kind of the geographic and time focus of the book, given what you've just told us? You know, we know this is World War II, but exactly where and when are we looking at? It's not just the war years itself. Mm. So the I think the easiest place to start is the war itself. Um, I'm sure people are familiar with this, but... Um, the Southern Pacific Command is the focus in terms of its geography. When America joined the Second World War uh, with the Pacific Theatre opening, uh, they took largely command. They were the, the command leaders of the Pacific Theatre. Um, and the Pacific itself, as people will know, is the largest ocean in the world. Very hard uh, to um, command a region like that. Um, so it was split into four zones and the South Pacific, command zone is the smallest zone uh, within those four Um, and within the command zone which was the focus uh, of my book there were a whole range of uh, small island societies now the south pacific command zone was um, a training area and a relaxation area for servicemen so it exists outside of um, the battle zone uh, or forward zones as they were called um, so you tend to have more uh, social encounters taking place between communities and um, occupation forces uh, in uh, those regions so um, it's very useful in that sense for kind of exploring uh, the social relationships that emerge, um, including relationships based on on love or a range of other uh, emotions. And the island societies we're looking at in the South Pacific Command Zone are New Zealand, where I am from, um, which is the largest of the island groups there, as well as the Cook Islands, which New Zealand has a political relationship with um, and has a governance relationship at this time. It continues to do so after the Second World War. Samoa, and in this case, Western Samoa, uh, which New Zealand also has a political and governance relationship. Um, I don't look at American Samoa, uh, although it's obviously very important to the story, given uh, its significance uh, for um, as part of the uh, naval history of the US involvement in the Pacific. Uh, Fiji, which is a crown colony of Britain at this time. Tonga, which has a monarchy and has a treaty of friendship uh, with the UK. Um, And there's also a range of other island groups uh, that are kind of within the mix of that. But those are kind of the the main ones that are explored of love and war. So um, the book itself starts with the Second World War but it also tries to track these relationships across time. Uh, and that's useful in, um, because you can uh, explore the kind of changing nature of the political context uh, and economic context of the Pacific alongside that. Um, so um, I track these couples as far as I can, as far as the archival material and primary source material will allow me to do so, uh, right through their, their married lives, including as some of them moved to the United States in the, the late 1940s and into the 1950s uh, as well. Um, so it covers you know the period, the 1940s, um, as close as I can to the the, the end of the these marriages, which might be as a result of divorce in the 1950s or 1960s, or um, they might be long-term relationships uh, that, you know, end as a result of um, death and widowhood 
um, in the mm. 1980s or 1990s. So now that we have a very helpful sense of um, where we're talking, when we're talking, what about how many? How many marriages, how many relationships are we focusing on in the book? And and could you pay, perhaps walk us through why there is that difference between marriage versus relationship and the kind of quotation marks we might need to have around marriage in this case? Mm. So the book follows around 1,600 couples, uh, not in uh, not every couple in great depth, but um, as much as I can. Now, one of the great advantages of the South Pacific Command is that it is a small command zone, um, and because of the nature of the archival material, it is quite possible to identify um, and also track uh, these these couples. So we're talking about a small number, um, and in that small number, you know, and by a small number I mean in comparison to thinking about Japan, uh, where the American servicemen were in a kind of occupation zone, or in, or Germany, and there's lots and lots of kind of scholarly work that's been done on on those two um, uh, contexts, and also the story of of women as war brides uh, in those contexts as well. Um, so the South Pacific is a bit smaller. Um, complicated by a range of different island societies and political relationships, but nonetheless it is possible to kind of identify and then attempt to track uh, those couples uh, as their relationships shift over time. So I'm talking about 1,600 couples. Um, Around 60 of them are Indigenous women or at least non-European. So the vast majority we're looking at are European woman, and by European, I'm, I mean people who may have been born in Australia but ended up living in Fiji, for instance. Some people might have been nurses who end up moving around the South Pacific, uh, supporting New Zealand or Australian forces uh, in the in the Pacific. Um, that we are also talking about people who are. You know, European families who have long roots in the Pacific, like in Tonga uh, or Fiji, because they come from uh, trading families uh, who've been engaged in um, establishing uh, sugar mills and things like that in the Pacific as well. So they're quite interesting, uh, complex histories that sit behind uh, some of those family stories. And sometimes those European traders married into Indigenous communities. And so some of the women I'm looking at are descendants of those relationships as well. So it adds adds another layer of complexity to the story of marriage uh, in the South Pacific Command. So in terms of that 1600, largely uh, European, but European of a range of backgrounds, and then also 60 or so who are Indigenous or non-European. And by non-European, I mean they might have Chinese backgrounds because, um, or Indian, uh, South Asian, because Fiji, for instance, had a history of indentured labour um, and also has a history of a Chinese community there, as New Zealand does as well. So there's an interesting story of kind of migration uh, around the Pacific that influences the nature of the demographics of those countries, which makes them really fascinating to look at. Um, In terms of marriage, when I'm talking about marriage in this book, I'm talking about legal marriage, that is the permission to get married and having been registered as a couple um, formally. Um, And by permission, I mean having to get permission from military command 
Uh, and perhaps, say, if you're in the Cook Islands, um, a New Zealander who's the governor um, or resident commissioner there would be involved in uh, making a decision about that too. Um, but I'm also quite wide-ranging in terms of my understanding of marriage. Um, I'm a historian of marriage. I'm a historian who's interested in Indigenous history. Um, and marriage customs look very different in the Pacific, depending on the society you're looking at. So when I'm talking about marriage and on love and war, I'm also talking about customary relationships that might exist outside the what we would understand um, as legal relationships, but within the context of those communities and also their cultures, they're understood as having some status and meaning as well. I hope that makes sense. No, it, it does. Um, and I think we're going to kind of understand those different aspects of marriage um, as I ask you to take us through sort of chronologically how these relationships develop now that we have um, such a helpful understanding of kind of the big picture of the book. So starting with kind of before we even get to talking about marriage and of what kind, can you help us understand some of the ways that American deployment in the South Pacific in these varied places that you've just discussed briefly how did this disrupt how things usually worked, social things, political things, economic things? And what did this have to do specifically with relationships, marriage, and especially societal expectations of what these looked like? Mm. So that uh, American deployment into the South Pacific uh, was rapid, number one, um, so and quick, um, and sometimes a surprise for people. Um, and I think what's really important to understand, not only is the Pacific a vast ocean, uh, but we're looking at small island societies. Uh, and just to get a sense of the scale, we're talking about a deployment that is, I think my colleague uh, Judy Bennett described it as like a tsunami of people um, and uh, all the stuff that goes with uh, military occupation. Um, so it is literally a tsunami of people turning up. We have something like, you know, Tonga, which might have in its main island around 30,000 people, but we'll see about the same amount of American servicemen passing through during uh, a couple of years at the height of the American occupation in the South Pacific. So it's doubling its population. And Tonga is also... Um, I think it's known as fat cat number one in American, um, the American terminology for describing the occupation of the region and the island as um, you know, a place for rest and relaxation, which also kind of disrupts social relationships quite significantly there too. Uh, and Tonga is a great example um, of how um, economic and social disruption takes place when you've got this kind of huge number of men arriving with all their money and wealth and all their goods. Um, suddenly the Americans seem like, um, seem rich in comparison to the Brits and New Zealand, New Zealanders who might be there. Um, and kind of politically, they look quite interesting too, in terms of kind of shifting your attention to um, mainland US and the potential that they have for the creation of a new set of political relationships that might mean the 
um, self-determination or greater independence um, and, and, and that shift away from uh, looking to the uh, UK. And the same kind of pattern happens in Fiji. So we have about 20,000 American servicemen in Fiji. Fiji is a much larger population and very um, ethnically diverse and culturally diverse as well and riven by um, uh, you know, uh, a kind of pattern of racial tension due to the history of indentured labour there um, and also kind of having a kind of predominantly Indigenous population too that have this crown colony relationship with um, the the UK. And one of the things that's a really big theme in Pacific history around World War II, um, and I think this emerges as well with US literature around the deployment of American servicemen into the Pacific, particularly African-American servicemen, is that kind of coming together of different cultures, um, the freedom that that provides for African-American servicemen that they've never had before, where they have some limited kind of status in their own country, offers an opportunity for seeing a very political, different sense of kind of politics that could emerge um, and becomes a kind of catalyst for the pushing of um, self-determination. Uh, particularly for Indigenous peoples uh, in the Pacific. So there's a real, Americans really are quite disruptive in a political sense because it offers an opportunity for catalyzing debates about political relationships that haven't been kind of servicing the needs of people uh, in their communities for a very long time. Um, and a Pacific historian, Damon Salisa, has written quite a lot about this in relation uh, to Samoa. Um, especially because New Zealand, um, when its governance relationship of Samoa, really just did not um, have a very positive relationship. So Americans turning up in great numbers, looking wealthy, they look like they're, they're you know, that's something exciting for local people uh, as well. It also shifts labour relationships in places like Samoa, uh, Fiji, people don't, they stop working on plantations and they start working for the Americans as do Indigenous women who work in laundries and, and things like that uh, as well, um, and working in hospitality sectors too and kind of servicing um, these huge numbers of, of young men who are coming into uh, these communities by the provision of restaurants, hospitality, um, and kind of uh, cultural performance too. So there's a real shift um, and a different dynamic in terms of those social relationships. And these men, when they're coming in in their camps, are living very close uh, to um, local communities, uh, and it's inevitable that social relationships, whether they be marriage uh, or things like prostitution, um, emerge as a, out of that kind of close connection. Um, uh, so that kind of closeness um, and the small islandness nature of uh, this place is, I think, a really significant shaping force uh, in the social relationships um, and connections that develop. And I think all of those factors, um, kind of, as you said, do make this inevitable, that relationships of various kinds develop. And yet, as you talk about in the book, the American military command is really not excited about this, inevitable though it may be. So, you mentioned earlier that uh, couples who wanted to marry had to ask permission from the military command among potential other authority figures. How and why did the American military try to regulate marriage? 
to what extent were they successful? Were there marriages with local women that they approved of? What were the criteria for kind of, yes, okay, we'll authorize that one, but not the other? Mm. So the the American military had um, marriage regulations, so the Navy and the Army did, which extended to the Marines uh, as well, because we're talking about those those three main entities uh, in the South Pacific. Um, and those marriage regulations had to take, it was required to take into account the um, marriage as it operated, marriage law as it operated in the United States uh, where those men had originally come from. So if someone had come from Georgia, for instance, uh, and was seeking to marry um, in the South Pacific to someone in New Zealand, uh, the person who was making that decision, usually the military commander, um, would have to take account of marriage law in Georgia um, and make sure that the relationship didn't offend the marriage law. So in the United States, uh, what an added complication to this is the fact that marriage laws in the U.S. Um, differ from state to state, and they also differ in relation to um, race as well. So some relationships that were legal in one state could be illegal in another. And the assumption was in kind of making these uh, assessments about marriage is that eventually these couples would want to um, reconnect after the war. So the American military commander had to take account of whether or not that relationship um, as a marriage would be successful in the state's under the context of those kind of American um, legal contexts, especially. Um, So race mattered in making decisions because around, I think, 29 states in the US had laws against um, certain forms of interracial marriage, and that differed from state to state. Something like California had very complex ones, whereas others, I think, had, particularly if you're looking at the American South, um, it related to basically, you know, um, white people and African Americans. Um, yeah, so that that that's an added added complication to the story of um, um, marriage in the South Pacific Command. And so, when they were making decisions, they were thinking about race, but they're also thinking about uh, whether or not this relationship would be successful. Um, and by success, they meant. Did this couple, was this relationship genuine? How long had they known each other? Uh, did this couple understand what it meant to get married in the context of uh, war, that they would be away from each other for a potentially significant amount of time? No one knew how long the war would last. And that did the young woman in particular and their family um, understand the consequences of international marriage, which also meant having to deal with kind of local laws around um, immigration and um, things like that, all the kind of legal and administrative requirements that went with that. And did the couple want to um, settle with each other? Um, and where would they settle? Would that be in the South Pacific or would it be back in the United States? So it was about the genuineness of the relationship. Questions around race are really important. And whether or not um, the young man involved also um, was financially able to support a wife as well. Um, And a number of these relationships um, where the archives were um, accessible to me 
Um, there were um, marriage investigation reports. So when I'm talking about financial uh, requirements, moral requirements, requirements of having known each other for a certain amount of time and questions about race, those marriage investigation reports, uh, which are part of um, military archives in the US, um, take account of all those different things. Um, and those questions differ depending on where uh, the American serviceman is located. So in Tonga, uh, would be far more likely that they're investigating the potential for marriage across racial lines. Likewise in Fiji, because Tonga and Fiji have very small European populations. Um, similarly in Samoa uh, as well. So when we're looking at the landscape of marriage, and in this case I'm talking about legal marriage um, across the South Pacific Command, the majority of marriages that succeeded in a legal sense that is, permission was given. Uh, we were in New Zealand because that is the largest population. They had a kind of largest number of American servicemen there. Around 100,000 came through the country or stationed there during 1942 to 1944. Um, and some women uh, actually travelled from, you know, the, the Fiji, for instance, where they ended up meeting um, American servicemen in New Zealand and managed to marry there. In the Cook Islands, the resident commissioner wouldn't allow any marriages at all. Um, so even if an American serviceman had permission from the American military command, it just couldn't happen. So you have no legal marriages taking place in the Cook Islands at all. Cook Islands is really, really small population, although there's a number of islands there. Uh, the majority of the population uh, are in kind of Rarotonga, um, uh, Avarua, other places like that. So, um, and the Americans are mainly based on two islands there, and the resident commissioner has quite a lot of control and authority there. So, and marriages don't take place uh, at all. You have very small numbers of marriages in uh, Samoa. Um, very difficult for people to get married there. So, this really goes to the kind of smallness and the closeness of island societies. Governance, kind of the authority of governors and the authority of resident commissioners was quite significant in these places and they knew the populations and they controlled things quite significantly, which makes, you know, the South Pacific really interesting kind of trying to follow marriage um, and how it kind of works itself out when you bring together a kind of American uh, sense sensibility uh, and laws uh, against kind of local cultures and demographics, and also um, British uh, legal systems, or English law, which was kind of operating in most of these places. Um, and sitting outside of those legal marriages, a whole range of customary relationships, because people couldn't get legally married, they still maintained um, a marriage-like relationship, and they were supported by their local communities to do that, because these um, Americans came in with wealth, and that wealth brought status to a family. So you have access to American servicemen and American goods for trade, things like that. That That is a, a boon to uh, local communities, and those communities and families generated status uh, through that. So it was um, those relationships were welcomed um, in local communities. So there's a really interesting kind of mixture of relationships and aspirations um, and taking place uh, across the Pacific. And it all depends on where you look um, at what kind of legal culture um, is predominant there, uh, but also how communities are engaged uh, with uh, the occupation forces uh, as well. 
So mm. I hope that, that that makes sense. It's quite complicated. Yeah. yeah. Well, it does, um, but I think it does make sense. Certainly mm. enough that I'd like to add an additional complication to <laughs> what you've already been telling us about. Um, what about children born from these relationships? Yeah. How did that factor in? Um, and I was particularly intrigued by, given what you've just told us about kind of the clarity of the archives in some senses, investigating all these complexities, you know, what does Georgia allow, etc. Mm. Could we, you know, do we have things like numbers of children from these relationships or is it more complicated? Mm. It's a really good question and that's one that has exercised my mind for quite a long time. Um, so one of the reasons why I look at marriage in its broadest sense is because children are involved. So when children are born into legal relationships or customary ones, um, or illegal in the kind of minds probably of the American military and resident commissioners, uh, what is their status uh, and how are they treated in local societies? Um, so that's a real, really important question. And whether uh, I think whether a marriage is legal or not, that relationship is significant and it's significant to the parents and it's particularly significant to any child that's born because it shapes their, their future um, it shapes their legal standing and it shapes their identity depending on how, you know, um, they're raised. Um, and um, and sometimes in the case when we were looking at Mother's Darlings, because our interest in that project was really on the kind of social significance, economic and legal significance uh, of these relationships and its impact on the children that were born and left behind, um, it does mean that sometimes those children grow up not knowing that they had an American connection or American father because there was, in the end, quite a lot of shame and stigma after the Americans left because people were abandoned. Um, and so there's that that comes into the mix, that kind of emotional kind of context and sense of identity. Um, so in terms of numbers, like while I can track marriages, thank God for documents and archives where people get legally married, I don't know how many kind of, um, what would be deemed illegal or illicit kind of relationships take place. And we can only do that necessarily through people's uh, um, memoirs um, or through interviews where we get a kind of sense of that. Um, and in terms of numbers of children, it's really hard to track because um, one of the things that um, when it comes to marriages and um, intimate relationships in the context of war, the American uh, military command were not very interested in supporting these because such relationships actually are a detriment to um, the ability to pursue uh, war in battle zones. Um, so they were trying to do their best to not give permission to such relationships, um, so such marriages, um, because they knew that people would be leaving um, eventually. Um, and they that you know those intimate relationships were a kind of complication that they didn't want to be on the mind of um, uh, these men as they were going into the battle zones. So it was seen to be something detrimental. So in terms of numbers of children, um, we don't know at all, really. We can only have a kind of estimate. Um, and we've estimated, I think, um, for South Pacific Command, for the numbers of children left behind, based on what we can find, maybe with around 4,000, and that's with kind of Indigenous mothers. So I suggest we'd probably have to double that or triple that for um, um, in terms of numbers of children um, 
fathered by Americans uh, within marriage or outside of it um, Hmm. with Indigenous and um, non-Indigenous women in the South Pacific. So we're looking around a a kind of sizable number, but it's Mm -hmm. very difficult to know because really the the archives only give us hints at that. Um, And, you know, one thing that I was amazed to find in the archives, which was something to do with Samoa, is where people were um, petitioning um, the American consular um, uh, office, I think, in Suva, Fiji, saying, you know, this is an American, small American community in Western Samoa, saying, well, a lot of these couples couldn't marry, but there are all these children left behind who've been abandoned, and they estimate between 800 and 1,600 children have been left behind by um, American fathers, whether mm. they wanted to leave them behind or not. Um, mm. Sometimes they didn't. Um, I have to kind of recognise that, that there was a real emotional connection there and a real desire to to build a family amongst some. So that's one of the few examples where we actually have a number um, mm-hmm. for Samoa because of a petition sent by a small American community to uh, a consular office in Fiji where they're wanting um, the American government and American military to take some responsibility for these children, particularly around um, financial responsibility. Uh, and there's a, the archives also have a number of kind of letters um, to consular officials, the American consular officials, I should say, based in Fiji and New Zealand, from all around the South Pacific, from parents of these young women saying, want to p- pursue paternity cases? Um, so mm. we can only get a sense from that that archive of what's what's potentially the number of children left behind. And I think when it comes to stories of war brides um, and marriage in, um, during uh, the Second World War, I think those women who were promised marriage um, or wanted to marry but didn't get to but ended up having children with Americans, they're an important part of the story and they have to be included. Um, and I made a determined effort to do that in Of Love and War. So there's a chapter that kind of deals with some of those paternity cases, um, but limited by um, what was uh, possible through the archives. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd like to ask you about um, an aspect of the book that has a lot in the archives mm. um, because it was about um, not the, not the instances that you've just discussed of where families were not built, but very much some intense bureaucratic hurdles um, to try and build family, to try and bring war brides and sometimes children as well um, to the United States after the war. Mm. So can you tell us about kind of what those processes were like, maybe the useful comparison is kind of what the process said they were like what was officially meant to happen and then what actually did yes well I think yeah it's very it's a very bureaucratic system um marriage is emotional but also it's legal and bureaucratic and highly there's a huge kind of administrative machine that sits behind it uh that was one of the things that I I just was really kind of amazed by when I was looking at the particular cases that I could track through the archives, kind of the amount of effort it took on behalf of a woman, for instance, just to kind of find the right form to fill in uh, 
for example, um, and to get all the data right that you, right information. Um, so there's, yeah, there's a huge amount of difficulty involved. So not only, so once you're married, if you manage to get married, and this is the case, I think, not just for the South Pacific, but anywhere we're talking about war brides, um, in order to um, want to move to the United States, you had to meet kind of certain requirements around health, you know, racial requirements um, under kind of um, the immigration laws. Um, and if you met those, then there were form filling to do both with your local uh, administration, but also with American forms and bureaucracy. Uh, you had to go, if you're a woman, go through a health test um, to make sure that you were of, um, you weren't going to be a burden on the health system um, in the States. Um, you also had to prove your morality uh, as well. So there was multiple layers of um, investigation going on beyond uh, marriage. Um, and you had to not have any criminal convictions or anything like that. Um, you also had to you had to have uh, money. <laughs> be able to actually leave your country and be accepted to go into the United States. So I think it was about $500 American if you yeah, were married to an American serviceman. You had to prove that you had that money and that was available just in case you were abandoned in the United States and you needed to be able to, to leave the country because it's quite expensive to uh, travel across the Pacific. Um, and, and at this time is, of course, by, by uh, ship. Um, and kind of transportation was also very patchy at this time uh, during and post-war for quite a number of years after the war itself. Um, so there was that kind of problem. So you you get married, you have to kind of apply for a visa. Then you also have to go through your health test, which costs, costs a lot of money. You have to get your passport, which also costs a lot, a lot of money. If you're in Fiji um, or other parts of the Pacific, you may have to pay for transport to get to New Zealand so you can get on a ship. Um, there weren't necessarily a lot of um, ships going through uh, the Pacific. So you were constantly waiting for approval to kind of access transport. Um, and if your passport ran out, your visa ran out, then you had to go through the whole process again and pay for all of that in order to hope that there would be another um, ship uh, or transport, which um, by a certain point, I think by 1944, 45, the Americans were covering the cost of some of that for those who were married to American servicemen, but not for fiancés who had to pay their own way. Um, sometimes women uh, were petitioning local governments and consular officials for assistance around this. So there's an amazing kind of archive of letters um, are, that kind of speak to the frustration of these women um, who are wanting to get to the United States and kind of reunite with their husband and start a family. And then if you were not uh, racially eligible, then you just never got to the United States um, because of that kind of racial component. Um, I think under the law, you had to be 51% um, white or more um, to actually enter into the United States. So there are a number of women who did marry American servicemen um, at a time when it was a little bit of fluidity uh, before the kind of marriage regulations really settled into um, some consistency in the Pacific, um, who did get married. Um, and they couldn't get into the United States. And so their husbands were constantly frustrated by 
um, local administration in their home states, but also um, immigration law in order to try and get their wives in. Uh, in 1947, there was an amendment to uh, war, the War Brides Act, um, which actually for a short amount of time um, got rid of the racial requirements and that meant that some women could get in. Um, like uh, Ty, whose family I talked to, and I interviewed Ty in the, for the book, um, who's Māori uh, from New Zealand, managed to get in um, after the passing of that that legislation. So there's all these different little permutations of legal change and activism that's also taking place on behalf of um, the war brides in the South Pacific. Um, it's really hitching on to debates about um, Japanese uh, wives of American servicemen and the occupation forces there too, because there's huge debates about the numbers of marriages that are taking place there. Um, and the, the story of the Pacific Brides is, is part of that larger debate about um, American forces in Japan. So they kind of come in on the coattails uh, of that. And there are cases in Hawaii where some women manage to get there uh, on transport but then get held by immigration. Uh, two particular cases relating to a woman from Fiji and a woman from Samoa where um, and Hawaii is not a state of the U.S. at, the, at that time. It's a territory. Um, where So there's a little bit of fluidity um, around um, the immigration laws, but they are held by immigration uh, and, and investigated for not being racially eligible. And then the local um, officials get involved and uh, attorneys and there's these major um, cases um, seeking um, to... Um, support these women so that they can reunite with their their husbands because they, in one case, one of them has a child. Um, and so that becomes quite a significant moment um, around these kind of um, law changes that amendments to the War Brides Act. It takes place in 1947. So the Pacific story is a is a, is a mixed in with the story of, of Japan and the kind of American occupation there, which has significant impacts for the ability of some women to make it to the United States. Um, and then when some women make it to the US, whether or not they're racially eligible, um, so we're looking here mainly at the, the kind of non-Māori, uh, non-Indigenous, uh, non-European, uh, yeah, sorry, the European um, war brides, even if they do make it, they're not necessarily um, able to succeed uh, in the States because they're not quite sure whether their husbands actually want them. Um, and they don't always have a, um, a very happy time uh, on arrival. Yeah. Anyway, there's a lot of kind of administration sitting around um, these relationships and the ability for these, some of these women to get into the United States really relies on how vocal they are, how much um, confidence they have in uh, navigating uh, the complexities of um, international law um, across the US border and also in, in the Pacific itself and the ability for them to actually come into um, collective um, action and some of the some of them do that by petitioning the US president for assistance or um, petitioning the local governments for help as well. So there's quite a lot of kind of interesting activism that's going on, on the ground um, in some of these places to try and get these women to reunite with their their families. So that yeah, it's mm. really it's really fascinating. There's mm -hmm. so many different little stories and threads to follow. Mm -hmm. um, 
And and I think some of the archival material that you included in the book um, is so incredibly evocative of this. Of I'm just thinking of one instance of the woman waiting for the birth on the ship, right? And like mm. barely able to fall asleep, not knowing when the message is going to come that yes, there's finally a ship and you've yeah. got a place on it. Um, yeah, the, I mean, the, so the much Red, here. Yeah, the American Red Cross archives in particular are really really evocative because when when those women do get on these transports it's the american red cross who are looking after them mm. um and they're writing um regular reports on um the experiences of the women as they go across the pacific um and as they stop in each location and those those records are just amazing for giving you a sense of the kind of the kinds of emotions these women are feeling because Godness knows what they're going to find when they get there. I mean, mm. we're talking about women who have a view of the United States from film. They have no idea what it's like. They have no idea how big and vast that that um, country is. They have no idea of these places they might end up because maybe their American husband, who looked quite rich while they were in the South Pacific because they were well paid, it's probably not very rich when um, it comes down to it when they turn up in the US. We've got women like um, Narita, whose family I talked to in Kentucky, who, you know, comes from a really, um, she comes from urban New Zealand, ended up in small town Kentucky, work, you know, living on um, someone else's farm doing sharecropping for tobacco. It's just so completely and utterly different from anything she ever knew. And I don't think she expected uh, that should end up in the middle of Kentucky. And that was her life, living on a farm in a house that had very poor facilities, was freezing cold, no idea of what winter was like, um, and ended up having a family of about 11 children and really mm. suffered, that woman did. Um, her, her children still feel that suffering. Um, it was really palpable, um, really kind of strong uh, when I talked to them about 2012 that you know because their mother had just passed away when I talked mm. to them and just how she was poorly treated when she arrived in the community because she was the only foreign war bride um, and she'd stolen a young American uh, as a husband um, she was a complete outsider different religious background had a different accent and she wasn't also she wasn't a very confident person and so ended up really focusing in on her family um, and her children as being the thing that really kept her going. Yeah, and her in-laws just didn't like her. Um, yeah, it was just, yeah, had a really, really, really awful experience. And I think that experience is probably similar to many other people, whether that Warbride was from um, the UK um, or a, another part of the world like Australia. You know, mm. turning up in a tiny place where you stick out completely as a foreigner was really, really difficult for some of them. Whereas someone else uh, like Rika Nui who ended up in Los Angeles, you could just hide. You're just one of many different people there. And she loved her life coming to the United States because she had a performance background. She was on stage in New Zealand and she got to enjoy all of that in, in Los Angeles. She also married a man who became reasonably wealthy and that really... Um, um, significantly shaped um, the nature of her post-war life too. So economics is really important. But also some of those men, their husbands, they came back really traumatised by war and that played out in their family life 
uh, as well, which was the case for mm-hmm. Narita. I mean, her husband really suffered as a result of the war and was found it difficult to transition to a settled life um, in Kentucky. Yeah, so the mm-hmm. the variety of experiences those women had. Um, yeah, I think when we thinking about the South Pacific, geography is really important. Going from a small island into a vast country, um, which never seems like if you're in Kentucky, you would, I would imagine you never you wonder probably if you'd ever see the coastline again. When you're coming from an island society where you're near a coastline, yeah, and that's a normal part of your life and your geography, and yeah, I could imagine that would have been really depressing for mm. someone like um, yeah, that's a massive yeah. change. It's a massive change climatically, yeah. geographically, and being so far away from your family as well. At a mm-hmm. time when, you know, international phone calls were not common. Um, yeah. And the idea that you could go back to New Zealand and visit your family, that wasn't possible for a lot of yeah. people. It was too expensive. So some people ended up being really isolated. Um, and um, yeah, and people like Narita focused on their family in order mm-hmm. to kind of keep them going. Yeah. yeah, so there's really diverse experiences yeah, yeah. that emerge as a result of the post-war, um, that, that post-war story. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, and in fact, to add a kind of additional strand of diversity to what could happen is, of course, um, some women got divorced. That's so right. Yeah. how did that go? Um, what were the various processes there? Divorce was really difficult and so complex. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, this is a story for war brides wherever they come from. Um, and, you know, in New Zealand and South Pacific is kind of no different. I think this is a pattern that most people experience. Because, you know, when a woman got married, um, there was a question of, so what happens when a relationship fails? There are all these kind of legal complications and complexities that emerge. Um, and when you're looking at the United States, you've, you're dealing with not just, you're dealing with kind of state divorce laws, and it's all dependent on the state from which um, your husband comes from. So the fact is that you might have got married under New Zealand law, um, when it comes to divorce, New Zealand law doesn't matter. It's all about American law and the state from which that American comes from. Um, and that, and say if you came from a place where it was easy to get a divorce, then uh, for some women, uh, they might re- they might um, suddenly receive in the the post divorce papers because a husband could just get divorced just like that really easily, depending on the state that they came from. And that was the case for some women. Um, and then there were other cases where women had been clearly abandoned. They'd been sent letters by the American husband saying, I'm not going to bring you over to the States. Um, I've met someone else. <laughs> um, this relationship just doesn't matter to me. Um, I'm moving on with my life. Uh, so these women had to figure out how to get a divorce. Um, and they didn't have access to, under kind of um, particular laws, it might have been required for them to go to the States to actually get a divorce. They couldn't do that. So there had to be um, a whole lot of law reform, particularly in New Zealand, um, where most of the marriages took place, that would actually shift New Zealand's divorce law to encompass these international marriages to enable these women to get a divorce from New Zealand, from their American husband, um, and then allow them to move on with their lives. Um, And similar patterns took place in the UK 
uh, as well. There was divorce law reform, which was often temporary just to cope with these wartime marriages so that women were not just simply abandoned, that they could be, they could um, move on with their lives and get remarried because um, marriage is such an important component of, of society as a social and economic institution. Uh, so it was okay for these um, temporary divorce laws uh, to come through uh, on the assumption that these women were going to marry and, and have a family um, after that. Yeah, so there was a range of complications that took place. Um, and it was, yeah, for some women it was just, yeah, mm. They were in the midst of a really complex legal situation um, mm-hmm. and had to navigate uh, finding um, legal support in their home country. And for others, um, if you ended up in the States, your husband had brought you over, um, but you ended up um, very quickly, that relationship falling apart, you become abandoned there. You don't have any family or family support at all. Sometimes you don't, you're not really accepted by the American family at all. So you have to end up Uh, looking for support from local war bride associations or consular officials to kind of assist you to figure out how to get um, a divorce in the United States and then help you get passage back to um, your home country uh, as Mm -hmm. well. So those, um, yeah, so when we're looking at that numbers for around 1,600 women, I think we're looking at maybe um, in terms of uh, divorce by, by 19... 50 um i'm trying to kind of recall the number maybe you know 20 percent mm-hmm. uh looking to to get a divorce and move on with their lives and when you add children into the mix it adds another complication because then you've got to ensure that there's financial responsibility from the american father to support the child um, across international lines um, as well and often uh, that was dodged uh, by by the men, um, so yeah, it becomes a really complex and difficult situation. Mm-hmm. Feels it's really hard to explain. Um, <laughs> no, it, I mean it, it's complicated, <laughs> but it makes sense. Um, no, so thank you for taking us through that. Um, I have a penultimate question, if you don't mind, mm. uh, that I particularly ask people who have dived into such rich archives the way that you have and that we've kind of mentioned throughout this is there anything you came across in that process that especially surprised you and whether or not it's something that ended up in the final book Mm. yeah that's a really great question actually I mean I think I was constantly surprised (laughs) by this project one by I guess the the archival record um In the work I was doing previously, looking at the Mother's Darlings project, everything that I was reading in terms of secondary sources and others who've been working in this area talked about the kind of the difficulties of finding information and of tracking um, couples or what happened to children. And so one thing that I was really surprised by was, at least for the South Pacific Command, there was a reasonable kind of archival record. Um, And I was really amazed by what I what what I did find, particularly with American Red Cross records and those amazing, amazing letters from family members trying to seek support for their their daughters. Um, and that's one thing that I was really um, taken by is the, the level of support that families, you know, where a, a daughter had been abandoned, tried to provide uh, their, their, their children 
um, in order to kind of manage the, the kind of emotional disruption um, and an impact of uh, abandonment. So the, I think the archives really surprised me. And I mentioned earlier that petition from uh, Samoa. I think I literally, I almost in the archives when I came across that wanted to jump with joy because <laughs> I never thought I would find something like that that actually specified that this was the legal social impact of occupation here that really had a, a kind of deep um, impact on the lives of women because you don't always come across women in the archives during the war. Um, they're hard to find and their voices are really hard to find. And even harder are Indigenous women. Their voices are not necessarily there. Um, so finding something like that that spoke to the the real stresses and kind of economic and social impacts of these Americans and what had been left behind as a result of that, including potential numbers of children, was just amazing. If I could have jumped for joy in the archives, I would have done it. I just you know, <laughs> wanted to kind of leap from my seat. You know, there's moments <laughs> where you you find a kind of uh, archival document. It's like, thank God. Actually, I'm, I'm not just, um, I'm not crazy doing this project. There's actually... It is real. It did happen. And people were concerned about it at the time um, and sought to to find a way to to resolve it. Um, so I think the kind of archival element was really, really important. Um, and the, I guess the other thing in relation to archives that I want to note is that um, one of the things that's really uh, significant in terms of reading about war brides, particularly in New Zealand, is that there's a lot of discussion about the numbers of women who married American servicemen, but there's been no work on what happened to them. Um, and I thought that was a really important story. But the way in which we kind of track and can actually tell that story has changed radically in terms of our research practices because of digitization and being able to access kind of um, American um, passenger lists uh, for all these war bride ships that head over to the United States. That made a real difference for me. Um, in actually doing this project. So I think like digitization has been a real game changer in doing projects like this. We can take a kind of data set um, of couples uh, and manage to kind of track them. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's, I think a project that would have taken me 20 years in the past took me 10 years. So it really <laughs> kind of cut back the kind of time involved. So yeah. I think that's really significant. Um, and I was surprised by the amount uh, of material that's been digitised. And I was grateful that uh, people had kind of worked on doing that, particularly passenger lists, because that has been, for this project, um, so significant. Yeah. So mm. I think there's, yeah, as a historian, <laughs> the the archives have surprised me completely. And the, be able, being able to find kind of Indigenous women's stories is really important too. Mm. And this is my final point in answer to your question, I think, is that... Mm -hmm. um, Stories about war brides, um, I think particularly uh, for the kind of Asia-Pacific region, has tended to focus on Japan. And a lot of what I've read had been kind of indicated that it wasn't possible for Indigenous women to really marry um, American servicemen. But I did find examples of that uh, and whatever form marriage took. And I, that is something that really surprised me. And I was really amazed to kind of find that information which actually was a game changer for the book uh, as well because it meant I could think really in really less than abstract ways about race and how 
uh, racial dy- dynamics actually shape the um, possibilities for for marriage and um, family uh, for Indigenous women uh, during World War Two. So I think that that was really significant as well. Mm. Well, a wonderful multi-part answer. Thank you for all of those parts. Um, I only have then one final question, perhaps building on what you've just told us. I don't know. Is your next project going to be in these digitized archives as well? What might you be working on now that this book is done? Oh, well, um, I'm still working on World War II. Um, I've had a um, wonderful experience on a different collaborative project over the past few years, uh, funded by a Royal Society of New Zealand Marsden Grant, which is our big funding uh, body here in New Zealand, um, looking at a story of the Māori home front in New Zealand uh, during the Second World War. Uh, New Zealand had um, a unit that's become very famous who served overseas, 28th Māori Battalion, um, as a result of doing a lot of love and war, I got really interested in the idea of indigenous home fronts uh, during the Second World War and what those looked like and how it, how the war shaped indigenous lives, um, particularly how indigenous groups and collectives got involved in um, supporting the war effort as well um, and what it meant for those communities in terms of their um, post-war politics. So I've been working on a major project around the indigenous home front uh, in New Zealand because there's no book on that currently and we've got a book coming out with Auckland University Press later in the year that actually is telling that that story so it's really kind of a community ground up kind of flax roots book in the sense that we're focused on communities and family um, and what it meant what the war meant for them Um, and as a result of that project we'll have actually two books coming out one in English and the other in the Māori language uh, which has been written to uh, tell the story of the home front um, of uh, families and communities and written particularly for schools um, too because we have um, a new curriculum in schools here that focuses on New Zealand history and there's a need for resources um, and books uh, that contribute to that so we're really hoping that that book in Te Reo Māori uh, will find a place um, in um, uh, Māori schools um, and amongst Māori teachers too. So that's yeah. that's the project I've been working on um, and I'm hoping to do a little bit more work on the Second World War um, and Māori veterans uh, in the future because I'm really interested in the fact that the 28th Māori Battalion had one of the highest um, casualty and wound rates of all New Zealand units and in the um, second New Zealand Expeditionary Force. So I'm kind of interested in, in how the state responds to that and provides healthcare and support for them. Mm. So that's the, the next focus for me. Well, thank you for sharing both of those um, with us. Uh, hopefully the schools do adopt the book. That's a fabulous effort. Um, and if your next research after that on veterans uh, becomes a book, do let us know. We'd love to have you back. Uh, but in the meantime, of course, listeners can read the book we've been discussing, titled Of Love and War, Pacific Brides of World War II, published by the University of Nebraska Press. Angela, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thanks so much. I really love talking to you.